Hello, and welcome to this episode of Curriculum Conversations with Allison Zamuda. We are the EduTech Guys. I'm David Henderson. Hey, I'm Jeff Madlock. Yeah, welcome to the show. Hey, welcome to this episode. We're really excited to have our guest on today. We're going to let her introduce herself and tell us a little bit more about her and what she does and all that kind of good stuff. So here we go. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for having me, Jeff and David. And my name is Allison Zamuda. I am an education consultant. I'm the author of about 11 books, um, starting to gear up for book number 12. I've been a high school classroom teacher um, for eight years, and then I'm an odd duck. I went right from the classroom to being the role of a consultant. And I think the power of doing that is that I'm continuing to keep the teacher voice in the work that I'm doing to make sure that it is intentional and actionable and compelling, not just for the students that we're serving, but also really is tapping in the passion and the creativity and the imagination of the teachers. And I think that is so important that you're, you know, a lot of times, uh, just frankly, uh, we talk with folks who are very student centered, which is not a bad thing, you know, at all. And 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 part of obviously what you do uh, does work with students, but to to have these conversations where we get to focus on what's happening at the educator level and yeah. the 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 information and the books that you've written about you know all of the different curriculum and what teachers can do. I'm very excited to kind of get into this and, and start, I don't know, just fleshing out some of the details. I know one of the things uh, that uh, you do that you head up is uh, this uh, learning personalized yes. website where folks can go for uh, resources for that kind of information. Talk a little bit about that if you would. Absolutely. So learning personalized is my, my baby. I've been, um, sort of the, the founder and the, and the head curator and creator of the content. So one of the powers of that is really just tapping teacher voices, administrator voices, and getting them to post things that they find to be fascinating, interesting that they're doing with their students or with their faculties. I think part of Learning Personalized is also really starting to think about um, a, a deeper understanding of what personalized learning is. And it's very much grounded first and foremost in backwards design. So I, you know, was sort of trained and had my had two fabulous mentors, Jay McTie and Grant Wiggins, in understanding by design. And that was one of the first areas that I was a consultant for. But as I started to pay attention to this, I started to imagine how to continue to have students have a seat at the design table. We design so much thing, so many things on their behalf, but on some level, to what extent is it working or not? And I think the challenge is that when teachers spend so much time investing their heart, mind, and resources in developing um, assessments and instructional plans in service for the learners, when you start realizing in the first five minutes that it's not quite a match, <laughs> then what do you do? And so the interesting piece of how do you bring students to the table in ways that are responsive, in ways that give them more of a voice in their own um, a learning story that they're doing um, as they're moving through an existing course or curriculum. 
So talking about that, how do you how do you move teachers, educators into mm-hmm. that mind shift? Well, you know, what's a great way to get them started in that? Because when we've been talking about personalized learning for a long time and it continues mm-hmm. to grow because we keep finding new avenues to to uh, to explore. Yeah. Um, so how do you uh, how do you uh, approach that with educators to make that mind shift change? Uh, so first of all, I love, Jeff, that you're calling it a mind shift change because personalized learning is a mind shift change, first and foremost. It's not an initiative. You can't, you can't purchase it. Um, you can't buy a resource, and then all of a sudden you have personalized learning. But from a mind shift point of view, you start, have to start thinking about what does it mean um, to uh, be on a teacher-generated space? So I'm just creating a little visual. Right? So we have a soundboard that Ben Kalik and I crafted. So teacher generated is on the left side. Um, learner generated or student generated is on the right side. And the thing here is that these kind of small moves that the teacher can deliberately amplify or tailor back is designed to be on not only what the student needs, but how we're growing their capacity around issues, ideas but also things like task management and time management, as well as the area of um, giving them an opportunity to demonstrate their learning in novel and fresh ways. So that to me is sort of the, the space of personalized learning from a mind shift point of view, because the small routines, processes, practices that you do with students day in and day out are probably more powerful to them than a magic project that will show up two years from now. And that to me is sort of the space that I continue to coach teachers on of starting to think about how do we grow students' voice, their capacity to co-create with us as teachers, their ability to work with other students to socially construct ideas. So they're curating ideas from others, but they're also producing ideas and putting them out in the world. And most importantly, what are they learning about themselves throughout that process? So those are the four attributes of personalized learning that really are clarifying the mindset, um, Jeff, that you described. Well, I think one of the key things that you touched on was giving students a variety of approaches to demonstrate their content knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I think um, I think uh, there are a lot of educators who, frankly, are still kind of struggling with that, especially when in their in their head, you know, or on a piece of paper that in a book that tells them, hey, you've got to cover, you know, these seven things during, mm-hmm. you know, this particular time period, or at least during this uh, course, you know, the, the time frame of the course overall they get bogged down in the standards of, you know, making sure I cover A, B, C, and D yet want to be able to be open and offer that, you know, creative Avenue for the students. How do you, how how do you help them reconcile that? Yeah. I mean, so now we start talking about this, not just as a, a classroom teacher level question, this is a systems level question. And I think the intention is if, if, a school or a system also needs to step back and ask the question, what are the um, curriculum choices that we are uh, entrusting teachers to make on behalf of their students? So I think that's first and foremost, is that we're walking away from a highly scripted curriculum to one that has a little more flexibility so that teachers can actually 
benefit from their personalities, their creative choices, and design those kinds of assessments. So that's the first thing. The second thing is really, again, a systems question of what is valued in the curriculum in and of itself. So I'm working on a, a, a fair number of projects with Heidi Hayes Jacobs as well. And we're starting to talk about the idea of streamlining curriculum, not only to make it more manageable, but also starting to think about how to make the curriculum more compelling, more interesting, more fascinating. So you can't teach from, um, you can't teach the entire curriculum typically as it currently stands. What are the meaningful standards or decisions that you're going to make of what to prioritize? what to keep, what to actually cut back on or cut out, what to consolidate. And if you do those things, then you're creating space for teachers to begin to have room to create new ideas, new avenues, new assessments. So unfortunately, it's not something that I recommend personally that classroom teachers go rogue and make those decisions on their own because you then start to have a real um, conundrum as students are moving from grade level to grade level of significant disparities. Um, and, and that's something that we're trying to avoid. So it's the systems doing their work as well as the classroom teacher providing space to begin to design these more um, um, diverse and authentic assessments. You know, I'm a jazz musician and um, I love jazz because I love improvisation. And um, I've taken that stance in most of my classes as a band director. I've done all that. Um, and and I love I love it because the chords always stay the same. The basis is the same, but mm. we write our own story across the top and it can change every time. Uh, it's personalized learning and a mind shift in jazz is what it is in music is what it is. So but it's interesting what we can pull off with a large group of musicians or even a small group of musicians. Uh, so getting to that, when we talk about making these changes, um, who needs to be involved in that? I mean, how small does it need to be? How yeah. large does it need to be? It, and at what level? It's it's so fascinating. First of all, I'm, I'm just looking up at my bookshelf. I'm a, I'm a history teacher by trade, but I don't know if you're familiar with this book called Effortless Mastery by Kenny Werner. And as a jazz musician, he talks about the idea of how do, you, how do you grow your capacity as a jazz musician? And the interesting piece is that there's this tension between the teacher, and again, he's, he's starting to sort of describe the general education, but specifically in music, you push too hard. The student actually can practice the piece for the performance. They're not necessarily growing their musicianship. So they're growing their capacity in that particular piece, but they're starting to lose this, the craftsmanship, the joy that comes from actually playing music, regardless of whether you're practicing in your room or you're engaging in a performance on stage. So I think the idea here is that who should be involved are the students themselves. And as you're continuing to begin to shift into a more personalized learning mindset, simply start asking questions, invitational questions to the student. And it's not about the teaching, it's about the learning that was resulting. So out of the questions that we pursued over the course of this past unit, which were the ones you found most fascinating and compelling? Why were they fascinating and compelling? Which were the ones that actually didn't spark your interest at all? 
And so the intention of really trying to continue to use your students to guide you is a, a, a fabulous first step. I, I, there's a, another um, a teacher that I'm reminded of in Vermont called Sam, Sam Nelson, and he is a, a middle school social studies teacher. He actually has students co-create his curriculum units with him in seventh grade social studies. That is on the far end you know, of co-created and, and student-generated. But the intention is that as students begin to dive in and explore the work, their natural tendency to question, to inquire, can actually be leveraged much more skillfully by the classroom teacher so that they could potentially continue to lay out problems, challenges, and ideas that are emanating from um, what kids are naturally curious about. And you can already see that different kids are curious about lots of different things. So the broader header of a larger question, a larger essential question, is absolutely helpful. And I think the other part of it is that the teacher also needs to be clear on what am I trying to do in the first place? What are the, uh, the larger goals that I'm after? And if it doesn't fit the larger goal, it's not a question that I'm worth going down, the worth taking students down the rabbit hole on that. I might actually um, talk about that question through the lens of a private conversation, through uh, a recommendation with um, an independent study or a network or what have you. So continuing to um, ask students the questions, not on rate my teachers, that's not what I'm saying, but really on the feedback on the curriculum and the story itself. You're listening to Curriculum Conversations, a podcast series made possible by Chalk.com. Chalk is the planning and analytics platform that helps K-12 schools integrate curriculum and instruction to ensure success for all students and all educators in each subject and across grade levels. Now back to our featured interview. So to follow up with that, uh, that's exactly the the idea of the of teaching students to, to continue to be creative, helping students understand to continue to be creative. That's a musician's dream. Um, I, I remember uh, a small quote, Pablo Casals, the cellist, was asked in his 90s, why do you still practice? And he said, I've almost got the hang of it. You know, and, <laughs> and, and I think that's so talking about that, the instructional timeline, mm-hmm. considering even what's happening now with the hybrid learning and online learning doing it. So what's the shift in the instructional timeline? To me, as a musician, was to to learn that I'm going to be practicing for the rest of my life. I'm going to be learning for the rest of my life. And we want all of our students to do that, whether it's in music or English or science or STEM or whatever it is. Let's talk about that instructional timeline and its importance and how it's going to shift in this this new mind shift. Yeah, you know, I think, uh, I hope hybrid learning is going to be around for just a little bit longer. Um, So I I don't think it's a a, a permanent state that we have to worry about long term. But at the the Mm -hmm. same time, you know, I think there is, um, you know, a, a real concern about how our students are engaging in the learning. So the learning may be shorter but the quality of their engagement may also not be as it used to be. <laughs> and I think, uh, I don't want to glorify the pre-COVID days either. <laughs> you know, So I think on some level, uh, if we can think about the flip side, how do we grow the capacity, as you just so beautifully said, Jeff, that 
you're still going to be practicing um, a couple of a couple of decades from now. Uh, I, Twyla Tharp wrote a beautiful autobiography saying that she still uh, goes to the gym every single day to continue to make sure that her body is prepped to do the choreography that she's going to be designing and leading later on in the morning. So the interesting piece is that the notion of growing learners that are lifelong learners to me is our primary job. And I think on some level, when we have students feel like they're in a passive role, they can actually engage in a bureaucratic level. I'm filling out the form, but I have no expectation that what I do today is related to what I'm going to do tomorrow or um, what I'm doing today actually has value that I want to retain in, in different ways or avenues I'm applying learning. That to me is um, uh, something that I'm deeply worried about. And I see that not only in uh, conversations with teachers about their students, but I also see it in my own daughter as a, a high school student. So to me, the, the interesting piece is really starting to pay attention to what is fascinating for you right now in my curriculum. I'm starting to move into the territory of the issues, the problems, the challenges, the ideas, the text. Tell me what you find fascinating. I need to actually make that front and center. And I think the second piece is thinking about artifacts of learning, not just within my um, curriculum content, but also in general, what are kids doing to demonstrate learning off the clock, right? So I'm starting to see kids do fascinating, interesting, compelling things that teachers don't necessarily know about. They're not, they're not assigned, <laughs> but at the same time, they find real depth and commitment in that work. So that's the interesting piece is starting to have a broader conversation about what um, learning um, artifacts are they actually finding value in, regardless of whether it's coming from their class or not. And then the second piece is, what are you uncovering about yourself? What are you starting to find out? Where are you actually getting excited about when you're stuck? <laughs> there, there are moments where you get stuck and you throw your hands up and like, I'm done. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Or somebody rescue me. And there are times where you get stuck and like your, your eyebrow goes up and you go, okay, now this is interesting. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's a productive um, dissonance. It's a productive space because that's where energy and creativity and just like getting the sense of what the author is trying to say, that to me is sort of the heart of it. So from a hybrid point of view, to circle back and answer your question, I'm really starting to be even more curious as to what's happening in the mind of the student in relation to both what's in your curriculum and what's outside of their school day. Well, and I think one of the uh, one of the best things from my perspective that that can happen along the lines of of what you're just talking about when you've got students who are are finding ways to put their learning into action outside of the mm -hmm. classroom, many times not necessarily consciously you know, making that decision to say, um, hey, I'm going to take what I learned in algebra today and do that out in the yard, but where they do some activity 
and then come back and talk about it. And the educator is able to say, you, you know, yes, this is, that's the real world application of what we right. learned yesterday in class. And a lot of times the students are like, wait, what are you talking about? I was doing, you know, X, Y, Z, you know, I was just doing this thing over here. That's like, right. yes, but here is where, you know, a lot of times students, and, and I've had my kids ask me many times, why am I learning this? When am I ever going to use this? Yeah. And to be able to work with the students and recognize when students are doing something outside of class and say, aha, this is when you're going to use this because you just did. And so it's interesting, David, too, because then you're starting to also think about those connections. Sometimes the connections are then turned into over-documentation. For example, um, a teacher was designing some kind of physical education log of you have to do 30 minutes a day. So just log on and tell me what you did. And there was uh, one student that wasn't doing it at all. And um, one day um, she was driving by um, the child's house and she saw him play basketball, (laughs) playing basketball outside. And so she had like a a private conversation, um, just reached out to him and said, so I don't understand why are you not entering that in? And he goes, because I could care less. I like, I'm doing what you want. You know what I mean? But I, I, I'm not filling out the form. And again, you're stepping back and say, there's value in the idea of a log. But at the same time, over starting to bureaucratize that, like that to me starts to ruin the kid's joy of doing it in the first place. So if I told Jeff, Jeff, you have to, to, to practice every single day. You have to do your guitar chords every single day. Because I said that, it actually is not necessarily in tune with what Jeff was originally going to do. <laughs> so, so I think on some level, that's just a, a small twist, especially in this kind of remote and hybrid situation that we're in. A powerful feedback conversation a powerful um, conversation about what they're doing outside could be as, if not more important in terms of making those connections than filling out a log or a reflection journal. Yeah, absolutely. And and so uh, along along the kind of same line of conversation, how do you how do you see the the openness for both educators and students to be able to adapt to their learning and their teaching come into the realm of equity and equitable education? Mm. Yeah. So the, the, the first piece I want to sort of, uh, I want to separate those two parts out. I think the first part is when you're starting to sort of work into a personalized learning space, um, it's changing the rules of the game, both for teachers and for students. So I think that's first and foremost, we have to clarify that, that as we start um, amplifying, giving more agency and more voice to the students, that comes with more accountability and responsibility. And that also means that you're doing it in a way that's equitable. That's the second piece in that we have to take students where they are, but we also want to make sure that we are not stereotyping students. Like these students can handle this level of work, but these students, they really need this level of work. And so as I'm starting to to move up and down bloom sacks on me, that's generally the problem 
is that many students that are struggling need the application more than anything else. I need to see what it looks like in the real world so that I can settle down and do the drudgery. That to me is the interesting dynamic of how to make sure that the tasks that we're designing for students, whether it's an instructional activity or an authentic performance assessment, they're designed to make sure that they are challenging, possible, and worthy of the attempt, not just from the teacher's perspective, but from the student's perspective. So that to me is a real piece in equity. And I know that that has been a a huge push um, in equity starting in the 70s and the 80s around the idea of the role of authentic assessment and authentic application with students. And you can start to see that when students feel value in the demonstration, value in the reason why, then all of a sudden they're willing to settle in and settle down and do the heavy lifting. Now, I think the other part is that a lot of students are not necessarily excited about personalized learning either because it makes them do more work in terms of not just, it's not work like the teacher is telling me what to do and I'm filling out the form, work in terms of what question am I interested in pursuing? What form do I want to create? How am I actually managing my my time in relation to a particular project or issue or investigation? So that's another interesting piece. And I think on some level, when teachers start moving way too quickly and they're moving from teacher-generated to student-generated without appropriate coaching and support with students... Um, it, it basically turns into a, a mini disaster or what I refer to as a hot mess <laughs> because students really do need support on how do I even begin to approach this? Not because I want to be handheld because I literally don't know. And from teacher's point of view, they basically say, well, I, I just gave them, gave them free reign. I just said, here's the project. Good luck. A lot of times kids need to use those moments to help become clearer as critical thinkers and problem solvers. So teachers, even when it's most student generated, play the active role of coaching for thinking of their individual students. Because it's not the projects they do or the performances they're in, it's actually the skills and dispositions and behaviors they got as a result from engaging in that experience. So that brings me to, that makes me think, uh, Allison, when Mike Fisher was on, he talked a lot about one of your co-authors about the curriculum in the role of assessment. And when we, when educators around the country hear assessment, a lot of them think testing and we don't want to think testing. We want to think assessment because we're constantly, especially in a personalized learning um, arena, we're thinking about assessment as a constant that is going on constantly. Um, let's talk about how the schools and teachers need to get in the mind shift again of using assessment with feedback um, to make sure that they're getting exactly that personal relationship they need to have and helping students create that personal learning on their own through the yeah. assessment and feedback. Yeah, absolutely. So I think from a personalized learning perspective, Ben and I um, in Students at the Center wrote about the idea that 
we see assessment as a cumulative assessment of learning. So not formative or summative. It's the artifacts that you sort of developed, you created along the way that tell your story of your own growth. So the notion of formative and summative, I think, is a bit misleading from, you know, <laughs> from a teacher's point of view of what is it that I grade? So I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of, well, summative should be 70% and formative should be 30%, but really starting to say, at the end of the day, how are the learners seeing their growth over time in the content, in the skills, and the thinking that we were trying to cultivate throughout the unit, throughout the course, throughout their school experience. So I think that's incredibly important to think about the idea of cumulative assessment, because then we can begin to say, well, we have to then have a way of archiving those artifacts and have an opportunity for students to examine their work and identify what artifacts are worth saving, worth reflecting on, and worth using to present and share with uh, a classroom teacher, um, my my parents, for example, or uh, you know, uh, if I'm presenting to a panel. But it's really trying to demonstrate a level of um, growth and progress, and also reflection on here are the things that are still difficult for me. So having some kind of portfolio metric to me is something that I hope to continue to help school systems find the value in and create a, sort of a, a space, a, a tech space to actually grow that. Um, in terms of the question around um, assessment in relation to feedback, I think feedback continues to happen all along the way. Um, I think first and foremost, having students have a role in better understanding the criteria that they are expected to engage in through the lens of a rubric or a scoring tool. So it's super helpful. I'll try that again. It's super helpful for kids to understand exactly what criteria they're being held accountable to, but also to be able to understand what quality looks like by looking at um, models and examples. And then having an opportunity to learn messy, whether they're preparing for a, a unit test uh, or they're preparing to um, uh, present a speech or uh, participate in a performance, the notion of scrimmages and dress rehearsals are incredibly important. We learn by taking a shot, looking at it with um, candor, <laughs> and then beginning to think about what are the next moves that I need to make. And that to me is how you grow the skill, the behaviors, the dispositions that are fundamental to so many curriculum content areas. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, along, along those same lines, um, you know, we have, we have talked about and covered so much uh, in the time that we've had together. Um, before, before you go, though, if I'm an educator and I've been listening to this and now I'm, mm -hmm. I'm pumped up, I'm ready to go, this is exactly what I've been looking for, how in the world do I get started? What are some of the initial steps that I can take to start to move toward student-centered curriculum, getting Absolutely. that feedback, adjusting my assessments, all that kind of stuff? Well, so David, I'll do a couple quick plugs. So the first is Learning Personalized. And Learning Personalized, again, it's a community of educators from around the world 
And that's a space for you to go exploring. So all of those um, blog posts, uh, tips, resources, et cetera, they're all free. And again, the intention is um, to continue to grow the thinking, not just based on what I believe, but from a group of educators that are continuing to commit themselves or lend their minds to the idea of shifting and growing in the space of personalized learning. The second area is something that Ben and I have been um, working our, our, our level best on uh, during the pandemic is growing a set of toolkits. So on Habits Personalized, so it's habitspersonalized.com, we have um, just, uh, I think, five toolkits so far that really are starting to break down um, practices and processes that teachers can use around um, uh, key topics. So for example, one key topic is metacognition. Another topic is growing self-directing, self-direction in your learners. A third topic is around inquiry. So those are the most practical getting your feet wet moves, but are designed and written to actually start to crystallize how personalized learning, um, the four attributes, uh, voice, co-creation, social construction, and self-discovery, and the habits of mind beautifully fit together, but in a way that is um, uh, something that a novice teacher can sort of begin to make their sense around as well as an expert one. So those are just two two ideas. That's really awesome. Um, I have to say thank you for coming on uh, the show. And we've got, I myself have another list of questions for the next five episodes. We have <laughs> So <laughs> it's opened up so much for me um, as an educator, and I'm sure the listeners are going to love everything that, that's been presented here. And once again, uh, the websites that I can visit, um, every the books. Um, you know, we didn't talk about books. Um, yes. <laughs> you, you're, 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 if if our educators are going to get one book right now, which one would you highly recommend that they they go out and they purchase? Well, I, I think Students at the Center is the, the book that I absolutely adore, something I wrote with Ben Akalik, and that's really been just such the launch of work that we've done since 2017 in that area. And that's really designed to be um, something that um, teachers and administrators can read to get their feet wet in personalized learning. Um, the book that I wrote with Mike Fisher and Marie Alcock, which is the most recent book uh, on Quest is really really interesting in terms of starting to think about how do we begin to um, take advantage of what we know about the brain, what we know about networks, and what we know about inquiry, and putting them all together to actually start generating student-facing, student-centered curriculum itself. So a more advanced read would be that one. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Um, Allison, thank you for coming on the, the, once again on the Curriculum Conversations. And we hope to have you back on again and uh, discuss more. Fantastic. Thank you so much for inviting me, guys. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Curriculum Conversations. Make sure to check out the full five-part series to hear a range of valuable insights from prominent authors, curriculum and technology experts, and school leaders from across the U.S. And to learn more about developing a cohesive, standards-aligned curriculum map supported by real-time data that improves instruction across your school or district, visit chalk.com.